Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. Tonight we're going to do something that we haven't done in quite a while on the multi-track meltdown. Get deep into the sessions for a handful of Beatles songs. We'll begin with a very important session in Beatles history. On February 11th, 1963, the Beatles stepped into Studio 2 at EMI to record the 10 songs needed to complete their 14-song debut LP, Please Please Me. After the success of their first two singles, particularly Please Please Me, George Martin decided that a full-length LP was needed to capitalize on their newfound success. In 1963, the singles market was king, and LPs generally featured weaker material to fill out the space between the singles. Please Please Me would be different in that it featured a number of strong originals accompanied by inspired cover versions of rhythm and blues tunes, as well as one show tune. Not much filler there. When they arrived at EMI on the 11th, the band felt that There's a Place was such an important song, it was recorded first at the morning session. Lennon stated that this was his attempt at a sort of Motown black thing. Although not much of that survived, the drum and bass groove shows the influence. Also, Lennon's melismas and his verse vocal are reminiscent of Smokey Robinson's singing style. In the end, There's a Place became the penultimate song on the Please Please Me LP, programmed before Twist and Shout. It was cut altogether from Capitol Records' early Beatles LP of 1965, a rehash of the debut album they originally passed on in 63. Although it was released on VJ's Introducing the Beatles, and also as the B-side of the Twist and Shout single released on the VJ subsidiary Tolly Records, it didn't garner much attention. The A-side reached number two, while There's a Place stalled at number 74 in April 1964, more than a year after its initial release. Although they obviously had rehearsed the song to near perfection, the parts they played developed a bit from take one to take ten, six of which were complete performances. The first change we hear is apparent from the first note. McCartney's bass didn't double Lennon's first guitar intro note, which Lennon missed on the first take, until take nine. This hammer-on takes on a significance that is not apparent when Lennon plays it alone. It's a subtle difference, but it starts the song in a stronger, more forceful manner. The song wouldn't be the same without it. Another difference occurs in the outro of the song. Originally, he started and played the signature fills over the outro. On take one, he plays straight time, but by take two, he decides to incorporate drum fills into his part, but not as frequently or as forcefully. By take six, he seems to have forgotten it altogether, not playing any fills on the outro until after the third There's a Place. It's not until take nine that the outro fills begin immediately after the first vocal line and have the intensity that drives the tune to its end. Harrison's lead guitar part probably has the most changes from take one to take ten. It begins with his entrance at the top of the song. First of all, Harrison's octave guitar riff, which would eventually be doubled by Lennon's harmonica, is hardly heard on the first two takes. It's not until take three that the octaves are truly identifiable. After that false start, heavy reverb was added to the lead guitar to smooth it out. Prior to this, it was bone dry. This made a huge difference in polishing up the lead guitar part in general. This would be the first Beatles song to use overdubbing besides the September 4th, 1962 vocal overdub on Love Me Do. 
Overdubbing is a technique used to add additional vocals or instruments to the original track. In this instance, John's harmonica was added to take 10. The way the engineers at EMI numbered overdubs was to call the overdub track 2 and use the next number as a take number. Therefore, the harmonica overdubs were numbered 11 to 13, with 12 being a false start. The harmonica part, although not completely in sync with Harrison's lead, made the riff feel that much more important and added to its hookiness. There's a place has not had that much exposure in comparison to other album tracks from the Beatles' early period. In America, it wasn't even released on an LP by Capitol Records in the 1960s or 1970s. After VJ stopped pressing Introducing the Beatles in October of 1964, it would only be released as the B-side of Twist and Shout on Capitol's Starline label in October 1965, or in the 70s and 80s on bootleg copies of the Introducing the Beatles LP. It was finally available commercially on 1980's Rarities album, but that was an album for completists, so the song again fell through the cracks in the U.S. Therefore, There's a Place became another forgotten gem. The Beatles rarely, if ever, included it in their live shows of 1963, although it was recorded before a live audience three times for BBC radio programs. Had the record-buying public, especially in America, paid more attention to this song, they would have seen another side to the band and the early musical and lyrical sophistication of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team. Things you've said I got love 
While Americans were clamoring for more product from the Beatles in early 1964, British fans patiently waited for a new single. Since the record-buying public in the U.S. had essentially ignored the group for over a year, there was a wealth of material that Capitol Records could release to satisfy the fans' insatiable appetite for anything Beatles-related. Beginning with the release of the I Wanna Hold Your Hand, This Boy single on December 26, 1963, Capitol Records, along with VJ, Tolly, and Swan Records, would put out a staggering 12 singles and 6 LPs by the end of 1964. On the other side of the pond, Parlophone Records released a total of four singles, three LPs, and four EPs. Of the four EPs, only the Long Tall Sally EP included previously unissued recordings, with the other three containing songs already released on their first three LPs. After the unprecedented success of I Wanna Hold Your Hand and the Meet the Beatles LP, Capitol Records needed a quick follow-up single and album to capitalize on these new superstars from overseas. Since VJ, Swan, and Tali owned the rights to the group's prior singles, as well as the material from the Please Please Me LP, Capitol was forced to look elsewhere for the follow-up single. Surprisingly, they passed on the song that introduced the Beatles to 73 million people on The Ed Sullivan Show, broadcast on February 9, 1964. While All My Loving was the feature song on a UK EP of the same name, released on February 7th, Capitol Records decided against it as the follow-up to I Wanna Hold Your Hand, opting to place it as the second song on the Four by the Beatles EP issued on May 11, 1964. The lead-off track of said EP was their first choice as a single, Roll Over Beethoven. Initially, Capitol executives thought that the U.S. audience would not be interested in an English band performing songs by American artists and left all covers except Till There Was You off of Meet the Beatles. In Canada, however, Capitol released Roll Over Beethoven as the A-side of a single issued on December 9, 1963, and there was such a strong response that it was imported into the U.S. and charted at number 68 on the Billboard Hot 100. The powers that be at Capitol Records in the U.S. almost followed suit, but were convinced by George Martin to wait for the group's next official U.K. single, Can't Buy Me Love, because it was more representative of the band's current sound rather than an eight-year-old cover that had been recorded eight months earlier. Such was the life of the Beatles in 1964 that it was necessary to schedule two recording sessions while in residency at the Olympia Theatre in Paris, although only one was needed and the second was cancelled. At this point, the Beatles were still not worldwide stars, having only travelled to Hamburg, Germany and to Sweden for a one-week tour, their first in a foreign country, at the end of October 1963. EMI's West German branch believed that the Beatles would not sell a substantial amount of records in Germany if their songs were in English. So after a bit of persuasion by Brian Epstein and George Martin, it was decided that they should record She Loves You and I'll Get You in German. The group dragged their feet, seemingly uninterested in re-recording any of their songs in another language. And by the time they were ready, it made more sense to record their current A-side, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, with She Loves You as the flip side. But although they agreed and two sessions were booked at EMI Pathé Marconi Studios, the group didn't show up on the morning of January 29, 1965, and were chastised by producer George Martin after he left the studio and stormed into their hotel room while they were having tea. Once at the studio, work quickly got underway. With both German versions in the can, the Beatles had an hour left of studio time and decided to have a go at McCartney's newest song, then titled Money Can't Buy My Love. Since Lennon and McCartney needed to write new songs for their upcoming film debut, an upright piano was brought into their sitting room at the George Sank Hotel. After finishing One and One is Two for the Liverpool group The Strangers, McCartney wrote the A-side of their sixth single, which would become their fifth number one and their third in the U.S., a first for any artist. By April, the Beatles held the top five positions on the pop chart, with Can't Buy Me Love at number one, 
and had a total of 14 songs in the Hot 100. Can't Buy Me Love was a first for a Beatles single, featuring only McCartney's double-tracked vocal and no backing vocals from Lennon or Harrison, although at the outset this was not the case. While McCartney had taken the lead on Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, and Lennon on Please Please Me and Ask Me Why, there were an abundance of harmonies present on the four tracks that comprised their first two singles. Their other three singles of 1963 had featured Lennon and McCartney sharing lead vocals, creating a unique vocal sound for these number one hits. This was all about to change. When the group initially began recording Can't Buy Me Love, there were a number of differences. First of all, it was a step higher than the final master, which gave it a brighter sound. Although the four takes are all at approximately the same tempo, the group lays back quite a bit more on take three, a breakdown, and take four, the master which makes the song sound a little less energetic than their original attempts. Out of all of the unreleased early versions of Beatles songs that have seen the light of day, the second take of Can't Buy Me Love is truly a fan favorite, and for some, their favorite version of the song. Take two might have its flaws, sloppy backing vocals and a flubbed guitar solo section come to mind, but there is an energy to this version that's lacking in the master take, take four. The main difference between the first two takes in the key of D and the master take in the key of C lies in the lead vocals, as well as the lack of backing vocals. It may seem that the change of key took away a grit and edginess heard in McCartney's voice on the initial takes, but it seems to be a conscious decision on McCartney's part to smooth out the vocals. In the original key, the highest note is an A4, and while that may be at the top of Lennon's full voice range, it was not the top of McCartney's. He was able to sing nearly an octave higher, but he was also a vocal chameleon, able to easily sing a note sweetly or with a growl, and by take three, he had decided to sing it a bit mellower. Along with this change in execution, something else would change by take three, which might have affected McCartney's vocal approach. The first two takes feature some exceptionally bluesy vocals from Lennon and Harrison, and are sorely missed on the final version. It begins with the title of the song sung in three-part harmony over the opening minor chords, culminating on a five chord, with the nine sung by Harrison. This is a tense moment that's been building through an intro that gives us no clue as to where and how it will end. There isn't much of a difference between takes one and two, besides an extremely sour note sung by Lennon when he enters during the A section. He's aware of the problem, stating, I had the wrong note at the beginning, at the end of the take. The sound of Lennon's voice alone toughens up the track, and the energy and power they must have felt with the three of them singing made McCartney attack the lead vocal with more attitude than the release version. Whether you enjoy the early takes with backing vocals or the final master without them, Can't Buy Me Love is a stellar track.
satisfied Tell me that you want the kind of thing That money just can't buy I don't care too much for money Money can buy me Next up, the A-side of the band's next single and the title of their debut film, A Hard Day's Night. The origins of the title have never been disputed, but its use as the film title and title track has, with different people in the Beatles' sphere claiming the distinction. Starr described it in 1964. We'd went to do a job and we'd worked all day, and we happened to work all night. I came up still thinking it was day, I suppose, and I said, it's been a hard day, and I looked around and saw it was dark, so I said, night. So we came to A Hard Day's Night. Lennon stated that director Dick Lester suggested its use as the title of the movie, although Lennon had used the title in his book in his own right. McCartney, however, disagreed with Lennon's recollections, claiming that the Beatles had come up with the idea of using Starr's Ringoism. The title was Ringo's. We'd almost finished making the film, and this fun bit arrived that we'd not known about before, which was naming the film. So we were sitting around at Twickenham Studios having a little brainstorming session, and we said... Well, there was something Ringo said the other day. Ringo would do these little malapropisms. He would say things slightly wrong, like people do, but his were always wonderful, very lyrical. They were sort of magic, even though he was just getting it wrong. And he said after a concert, phew, it's been a hard day's night. Producer Walter Shenson also took credit for naming the movie when he stated in 1996 that Lennon described some of Starr's funnier sayings to him, including a hard day's night. Whereupon Shenson immediately decided on the title of the movie and told Lennon that he needed to compose a theme song for it. Whoever decided to use Star's Gaff as the title of the movie, Lennon quickly wrote the song. He elaborated. The next morning I brought in the song, because there was a little competition between Paul and I as to who got the A-side, who got the hits. If you notice in the early days, the majority of singles in the movies and everything were mine. In the early period, I'm dominating the group. The reason Paul sang on A Hard Day's Night in the bridge is because I couldn't reach the notes. The opening chord of the song has also been debated by countless Beatles scholars, musicians, mathematicians, and others, and provides an innovative and striking intro to both the song and film. The song is also notable for its use of Harrison's Rickenbacker 12-string guitar as a lead instrument. The solo section was recorded by Harrison along with Martin on piano at half speed, so it would not only be easier to play, but add a different sonic texture. Listen for Harrison's more typical approach to the solo in the early takes of this classic Beatles track. Okay. Hard day's night. Take one. <clears throat> one, two, three, four. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping 
was him. I heard a funny chord. Pardon? Yeah, not half you didn't. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'll, I'll. Yeah, tap toe on a high. One. One, two, three, four. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log, but when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel alright. You know I work all day to get your money to buy a thing, and it's worth it just to hear. Oh, 
that's it for this week. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and also the Steely Dan FAQ. You could like the Facebook page for The Beatles I Want to Tell You, and also for the Steely Dan FAQ. And look out for a new CD release, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics. See you next time.